0: Hey, South Bend City Church Digital Fam, Mariah here. Before we get to Jason's teaching for the week, wanted to keep a couple things in front of you. First of all, let me just say how thankful we are that you're a part of our community and so grateful that you chose to join us today. So a couple things to keep in front of you. First of all, if you call South Bend City Church home, even if you are miles and miles and miles away— We have a couple different opportunities for you to form more connection if that's something that you're interested in. Both of these opportunities come in the form of Facebook groups. And so if you go to Facebook and type in South Bend City Church Collective... And then separately, South Bend City Church Open Forum. Those are two groups that exist that help us foster community. The Collective is a group that simply exists for just that, creating community, whether it's an event that you're attending or an event or project that you're a part of and you want to invite people to, or if you're just going to a baseball game and want people to join, it's just a great way to connect that way. And then the Open Forum is simply a place for open questions and discussions, On themes consistent with South City Church and our region, you can share prayer requests and encouragement there or share community calendar type posts of events in our area that help us to love or enjoy our world more. Those are two ways where you can get to know our community a little bit better. And as always, if you consider South Bend City Church to be your home, you can give by going to southbendcitychurch.com backslash give or just jumping down to the show notes below and clicking that link. It's through the generosity of you and all of the people that call South Bend City Church home that allows us to do what we do. So thank you for being a part of that if you choose to. All right, so today we're jumping into week four of our Old Creed New World series where we explore the Apostles' Creed And today, we get to hear a teaching on the scandal of the particular and the beauty of finding God in the details of Jesus. At the end of the teaching, you will hear Jason lead us in a practice called Lectio Divina. It's a way for us to read, meditate, pray, and contemplate through Scripture, and it's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we hope that when we get to that point, you will join us as we finish our gathering through that lens. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's join Jason and the rest of our community now.
1: Uh, I don't know how you experienced that time. I hope you feel a little more present. I hope you sense that you belong here all the way, like body, feelings, uh, history and, and future, like memory and hope, that like all of that, you're here right now and you belong here. And I hope, like from that place, we can move forward together a little bit um, into what I what I hope will be a gift, what I hope will be uh, a grounding gift, and a, a gift that creates new possibilities for us uh, in the conversation that we want to have and keep having. Um, that we're calling old creed and new world. Uh, we don't have a ton of neg- non-negotiables as a community. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, different faith communities have different kinds of things nailed down, practices or doctrinal statements or ways that we do things, and we've tried to not have too many of those things here. We think that life is well-lived, kind of open-handed, kind of open-minded without too many things that you grip white-knuckled, right? Uh, We also think that um, faith is better open-handed and open-minded without having too many layers stacked on that become non-negotiables, and I don't know if you've noticed, but faith can be the kind of thing and church can be the kind of thing where you add layer after layer after layer of non-negotiables and pretty soon you're just carrying around this whole truckload of things that have been called essential and it can be exhausting. And then you look around and you realize that your sisters and brothers have different truckloads of things that they call non-negotiable and you're trying to figure out how we ended up in all these different places and we've not wanted to do that. Uh, Church and faith, these are broad streams with many currents within them, and we've not wanted to restrict ourselves to one current in this broader stream. However, uh, we've also not wanted to be unrooted, unanchored. We've not wanted um, to have nothing that we hold fervently. Um, We've wanted to receive and inherit and and entrust ourselves to the story that we're a part of here. Uh, I thought a lot in the last week or so about how COVID, um, the last few years have been exhausting and what it is that made them exhausting. And there's a lot of reasons it's been exhausting. But I, I think one of the reasons is that like when COVID hit, we had to start improvising everything, right? Like every pattern you had set, every commitment you had made, every way of regularly showing up, all of that got tossed up in the air and we had to reinvent everything. And that's exhausting And that can be a little bit like how it feels to to live in the world that we live in right now where, and I think a beautiful and challenging way, we have access to all these different stories and ways of thinking and being in the world. This is kind of a modern phenomenon in the wake of the internet and the kind of rampant access that we have to all these different worldviews and ideas and stories. And I'm I'm not afraid of that. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. But it is kind of new for us to have access to everything and to sort of start from scratch and figure out what we want to pick from from here and there. And again, there's a lot that's good about that, but it is exhausting sometimes. And we have wanted to to root ourselves in something that we've inherited because I think it's actually human and and good to inherit wisdom and to receive a story and to find yourself within it. And that's why we've been looking at uh, this, this text that's called the Apostles' Creed. This is a way of narrating a story that we are a part of, and it's been with us in the world for like 1,600 years. It emerges uh, just a few centuries after the life of Jesus, and it's a way that followers of Jesus have described the story that they find themselves in as they come to know God through him. So we've been working through it, and I just wanna like briefly remind you of where we've been before we go any further. Uh, The creed begins with these words, we believe. Now, actually, often the way the creed is used in churches, that actually begins with the words, I believe. Uh, But there's a historical precedent, if you go way back, that actually in its earliest form, the creed was spoken, we believe, at least some of the time. And I think there's something to be said for that, because I don't know about you, but I find that on certain days, I believe certain parts of the creed more than others. And I think the invitation here is not to, like, ask you today what are all the things in your head that you can affirm with everything you've got so much as to say like are you part of a community of people who are learning to trust this story together and maybe on any given sunday i've got part of this story in me and you've got another part of it in you but together we believe and by the way the word believe here might have less to do with just the content in your head and more to do with your heart i know we've made this point already but there's a scholar named diana eck who says that the the latin from which the creed comes The word credo, which is what gets translated, I believe or we believe, might be better translated, I give my heart. I rest my heart in this story. I trust this story. Now, from there, the creed goes on and says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we've already talked through all of that. We've talked about um, the beautiful and complicated nature of using father language in the creed. Uh, We've talked about the idea that the mystery, at the center of reality that we call God, has done all of this making and creating work, and that maybe the way that God has done all of this making and creative work is actually pretty well described by the processes that we call evolution. And maybe that's beautiful, because I don't know about you, but my life seems to be the kind of thing that works slowly and requires patience. And if that's the way that God loves to create things, then maybe I can be a little bit more patient with myself, and the way my own life is being made, and the things that I have my hands on, and the things that I'm helping to create. And then from there, after these big, expansive words about the mystery at the center of reality that we call God, creating and giving life to everything good and beautiful that we see, after all that big, expansive, beautiful stuff, we get to the next line in the creed, which says this, we believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how you feel about the movement from what we've just heard to this line, but I can observe right out of the gate that we've gone from a big, expansive line about the creator, God, behind everything, behind all things, and now we've dropped into something very particular, haven't we? <laughs> like, just like that, just like one sentence in, we've gone from big, expansive, and universal, and we've dropped down into a description of an actual body of a person who lived in the first century. And that can be a complicated feeling for people, that when you go like from the universal to the particular And from what I've learned, like, in our own church or any room this big with this many people, there's a lot of different feelings and thoughts and experiences around this movement from the big and the universal down into the particular life, the body, the experience of of Jesus. Let's just, like, talk about that for a bit, right? I mean, it may be that you've seen the way that the Jesus thing has been used in the world or the Christ thing has been used in the world. and It's just been so problematic, We've said this before, and we'll say it again in a couple of weeks. We're just getting warmed up. But Jesus can become a mascot for things that have nothing to do with Jesus, right? This is not an uncommon thing, and you can think of your own examples that you've seen, right? Um, You can be all about Jesus. You can talk till you're blue in the face about how much you believe in Jesus and how much you identify with Jesus and trust Jesus. You can be all about Jesus and miss all the things he was about. You can, like, take those two words, Jesus Christ, and then fill them with all of your own content or your own power play or your own biases or prejudices or bigotry. And you can use those words. You can try to draw them into the games that you're playing or that I'm playing. And that might be a reason that you feel really conflicted about these two words because Jesus has become a mascot for things that have nothing to do with Jesus. And I get that. Uh, And we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks, and that's not the sermon today, so shut up, Jay, move on. Um, That's true, I get that. I also understand um, that for some, this phrase right here has been used to suggest that you're not supposed to find anything holy or beautiful or sacred in your neighbor or your friend, or your sister, or your brother, who doesn't affirm these words. Like somehow you've crossed a line if you see something good or beautiful or true in somebody who doesn't affirm these words, or in some philosophy or system of thought that doesn't celebrate these words. That's another reason, I think, to feel conflicted about these words, because if you're paying attention... I bet you have seen something true or good or beautiful or sacred and your friend, your neighbor, your brother or sister who doesn't affirm these words or even like a a worldview or a philosophy or a system of thought that doesn't celebrate these words and when you feel and sense that beauty or that holiness someplace that seems outside the boundaries of these words but you've been told that believing these words means you're not allowed to well then you might be really conflicted about these words and I, I get that. We'll say more about that going forward. I don't think these words are meant to suggest that you're not allowed to find something holy or beautiful or sacred or true in your friend, your family member who doesn't celebrate, we believe in Jesus Christ. I think that completely misses the point. Um, Now with all that conflict around the particularity of this, with all the complicated feelings around the big universal picture of Creator, of God, dropped down into the body and the life of Jesus Christ. There's actually a phrase for this among theologians. I love they have this phrase. They call it the scandal of particularity. There's almost something scandalous about suggesting that all of that big universal stuff is dropped down into the particular life of Jesus. And I just say that to tell you, like, if you feel a little scandalous about this, you're not alone. Some of the best theologians refer to this experience as the scandal of particularity. Now, I don't think it's actually a bad scandal, and I'm going to say a little bit today about why I think these words are beautiful and true and important for us. But I'm just starting out of the gate to say, if you feel conflicted around this, you're not alone. Uh, the word's Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ. Why would we believe in Jesus Christ? And why would you call Jesus Christ? I don't know if you know this. Christ is not his last name. <laughs> uh, like, where does this come from? Let's, let's go right into the heart of where it comes from. I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 16 to an experience that Jesus is having with his friends. Let's go here. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself here. And he's saying, hey, out, out there among the people... What are they saying about me? Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been out there doing public things for a while. He's been teaching and healing and confronting unjust systems and inviting people to come along with him, answering questions, people trying to trap him. He's been out there doing his public thing for a while. And there's a big crowd following him. He seems to have attracted some fans, some devotees, and some some skeptics and some spectators. But they're all out there kind of observing the Jesus thing. And so he looks at his closest friend, the disciples who have been with him, and he says, like, what's the noise out there about me, right? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin who's been executed at this point in the story. He had been out there in the wilderness saying that God's going to do something new in the world. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to require your surrender. It's going to invite you to leave behind one way of being and enter into a different way of being so that you can be a part of the good new thing that's going to happen. So that's John. Elijah and Jeremiah are prophets from centuries earlier in their people's history. But these are are people from their past who these disciples and their people in the first century thought of as like people who God had spoken through. And if God's speaking to you, then maybe God is with you. And so for for the crowd to say, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist, or maybe Jesus is Elijah, or maybe Jesus is Jeremiah, I know that's strange. We're not talking about reincarnation or something like that. It's a way of saying that, that the same work that was happening through them is happening through you, the same... Vocation, like, and and the way that we knew that God was with us and speaking to us then, we feel like God is with us and speaking to us now. Uh, We may not like think of memory that way, we may not identify one another in our lives through names from the past, but it's not uncommon to sort of identify an experience you're having right now by reaching back into your history and looking for another example, right? So something like that seems to be going on here. He asks his friends, like, what's the crowd saying about me? And they give these names. Let's go a little bit further then. And then Jesus says, what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? Now, before I turn to the next slide where you see the answer, I just want to, like, analyze this moment for a second. So Jesus um, first asks his friends, what are the crowds saying about me? What's the outer circle saying about me, right? And then he turns to his friends, the inner circle, the people who've been walking with him. They've been road tripping with Jesus for three years. They've seen everything. Now, road tripping reveals a lot about a person, right? (laughs) Be honest, how many of you thought about going on a road trip but you know which friends are invited and which are not? Right? (laughs) This is true, I have friends, uh, a, a lot of friends in Nashville who make their living touring and playing music. And this is actually true, I'm not making this up. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, and you're hoping to make a living as a touring drummer or guitar player or bass player, one of the instrumentalists in the band, maybe a singer. And so you're hoping that some rock star is going to bring you along on the tour bus. And you're wondering what's going to differentiate you from all the other drummers and guitar players and bass players and singers in Nashville who are also looking for good paying gigs on the road. This is actually true. I've heard these stories from friends who make a living doing this. An inferior drummer, guitar player, or bass player, I mean, you can't be very inferior, but a little bit inferior will win the gig if they have a good reputation for being a good hang on the road. Because you're stuck on a tour bus whether you like it or not. And no amount of talent is worth putting up with a jerk on the road, right? (laughs) Road tripping reveals things about us. Like things get real very quickly on the road trip. And these friends have been walking with Jesus every day on the road for three years. So Jesus started with, what's the outer circle, the crowd saying about me? Then he turns to his friends who are part of the inner circle, who have seen him for like all he is. And when I think about that, I also think about this thing that I've observed last uh, couple of decades in my own life in church ministry, and sometimes bumping into uh, very like famous or prominent Christian voices or leaders, or more often, not directly bumping into them, but having friends and colleagues who have worked with them directly. And here's what I've noticed. You can pretty quickly figure out, if you're paying attention, the, the, the prominent figure that you have in mind, right, the, the preacher, the author, the bestseller, whatever the, the powerful voice is, you can pretty quickly detect, if you're paying attention, whether when you get closer to them, do you think more of them or less of them? right? When you go from the outer circle to the inner circle around a prominent figure, does the assessment of that person get better or worse? God knows, tragically, I've heard too many stories about how when you get to the inner circle and you see things for what they really are, the assessment goes down, right? Now, to be fair, because a lot of us are prone to too much cynicism right now, to be fair, I've also heard more stories than you would think, about prominent leaders and people who've given their life to this kind of work, who the closer you get to them, the better they are and the more integrity you see. And those stories need to be told more often because they don't, they don't tend to grab the headlines the way the scandalous stories are told. But I'm telling you, those stories are out there too. But it's always interesting to observe. When you go from the outer circle to the inner circle, does your assessment of a person like tick up or drop down? And we're, we're about to see what their assessment is when we go to the next slide here. So next slide. Peter, in response to Jesus saying, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, whether these words make sense to you or not, I'm telling you, this is an upgrade. This is, um, to go from Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist to Messiah, Son of the living God, this is an upgrade. This is a step up in the assessment. But let me be more specific about what Peter is saying when he says this. When he says Messiah... This is a word for his people that describes a a very specific hope or expectation. Uh, Next slide. Messiah literally means anointed one. And there were different kinds of anointings that would happen for the Jewish people. Uh, Anointing meaning both the idea that God's spirit is on you in a unique way. And also anointing being a ceremony or a religious ritual where you maybe would use oil as a sort of physical symbol of the belief that that spirit is on them, you would put oil on them to anoint them. And specifically, Messiah anointing refers to a person who's anointed as king. So here's the thing. For for Peter and his friends, they've got these pre-existing categories of what they can expect and what they can hope for. These categories are formed by their people's history. So the prophets are a category, like Elijah and Jeremiah. And the crowd says, we think he's like one of those. That's the category we would put him in. And then there's another category, which is Messiah, which is anointed one, which is to say, in our past, we've had some really good kings. And these kings protected us and delivered us. They ensured our liberation and our safety and our identity as a people. And we haven't had one in a while. And we've been longing for one. And Peter says, I think that's what's going on here. As far as I can tell, that's the highest category available to Jewish people in the first century. If they looked back through history and imagined all of the possibilities for who Jesus could be, this is the highest category they have in mind. And they say, I think that you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the king that we've been waiting for, who's going to do all this stuff. Now, Messiah didn't show up anywhere in the text. I understand that. The word that we heard was Christ. You are the, the, sorry, Messiah did show up in the text, but we call Jesus Christ. We don't often call him Jesus Messiah, that just happens to do with with language because the New Testament's written in Greek, not Hebrew or Aramaic. And so next slide. If you're looking for anointed one in Greek, you're going to say Christos, which is where we get Jesus Christ. A little kind of historical note there, right? So, So we go from the outer circle to the inner circle and closer to the experience of Jesus, and they go from one of the prophets to the king that we've been waiting for but I still want to observe, and this is the kind of thing that New Testament scholars argue about all the time. Um, it's not clear to me that in that moment, Peter had in mind all of the things that the church has gone on to say about Jesus. It's not clear to me that he had the whole enchilada on his mind when he said, you're the Messiah. It's clear that he thought you're the king that we've been waiting for. But the church has also said things like this about Jesus, like in the book of Colossians. Or sorry, um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I I, I bounced around on Lori. I'm sorry. First of all, let's go here. I did this last gathering too, didn't I? Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine having Lori's job? Um, Jesus replied to this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Which to me is something like saying, your brain didn't figure this out by just doing the math. This wasn't just you analyzing historical details and connecting dots and seeing it for yourself. It's as if Jesus is saying, this came through you in that deep place inside. That that place inside where you live beyond just your thoughts and your analysis and your capacity to understand things, that deep place inside where God speaks to you, that deep place through which God speaks through you and comes through you, that you somehow like drop down into that place inside, that way of knowing things that goes beyond just analysis and math and and gets to that like deeper way of of knowing and experiencing life. And it's from that place that you have recognized something deeper is going on here. And that deeper thing keeps kind of unfolding and expressing itself more and more until we get to Colossians where we read things like this speaking of Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, when Peter said, you're the Messiah, I'm not sure he had all that in mind. I'm just being honest. I'm not sure anybody who's walking around with Jesus in the first century while he's doing his, his, his things is thinking of those kinds of categories because those categories didn't exist when they were walking around with Jesus. As far as I can tell, and as far as all the theologians I read can tell, like when Peter says, I think you're like David, that king who we loved and who we remember fondly, and we hope that we will be a kingdom in the same way that we were when David was our king. I'm not sure he's thinking, you know, and just like David, the fullness of God dwells in you, just like it did in David, because nobody thought that about David. And I'm not sure anybody thought that David reconciled all things everywhere with his presence. I'm not sure those are the categories. Like something happened to create a new category something happened between Matthew 16 and Colossians 1 to go from, like, I I think you are are part of the biggest, best category we have right now to, oh, no, we have a whole new category for the mystery of God meeting us in flesh and blood. And I'll just spoil it for you. The thing that happened is the resurrection. Now, I understand also that, like, in a community of believers and doubters and all of us who are a little bit of both, we got people in the room who are, like, full-on on on the resurrection story, and others who are like, I don't know. I get that. I don't have time to deal with that today, but I I, I just get that. (laughs) And we love that we have a community full of people with different questions and, like, relationships to that story. We love that about this church. But what I'll tell you today is just the logic of the story. If you're wondering how we got there, whether you believe them or not, they believed in it. And again, you don't have to agree with them today, but I'm just telling you, like, the movement from, I think that you're like David, to... No, the fullness of God dwells, firstborn over all creation, through which all things are made, reconciling all things, and through whom and in whom all things hold together. The way you get from anointed king to this is a resurrection. And it seems it was resurrection that, that vindicated Jesus' um, completely different way of being a king. It's interesting, right after the Matthew 16 passages that we read, Jesus, after saying, like, yeah, you're right, I I am the the anointed one, I'm I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, that's not how it goes, buddy. (laughs) And then Jesus rebukes him. Says things like, get behind me, Satan. If Jesus calls you Satan, you're having a bad day. (laughs) You, You got the answer wrong, right? But Jesus is sort of, Getting down into this human experience, inhabiting this human experience so that he can disrupt it and subvert it, toss it upside down and create new categories for us, like the things that we just read from Colossians. Um, If Jesus is just the next king in the line of kings that the Israelites had hoped for, I don't think it's likely that 2,000 years later we're talking about him. I don't think it's likely that 2,000 years later, we're literally dating our calendar based on when he was here, right? Now, again, that may not be a proof for all the the faith claims that Christians make about him, but it's pretty hard to argue with the radical and rampant impact of Jesus on, on human history and on the human psyche. Now, I understand, like I said earlier, I understand that many of the things that have been done in Jesus's name, many of the campaigns and empires and abuses and structures built in his name have been deeply broken. They've appropriated Jesus for things that had nothing to do with Jesus. And when you like, look at history and you look for everywhere Jesus' name shows up, a lot of what you will see isn't good and it doesn't look like him. But the creed doesn't say we believe in Christianity. The creed says we believe in Jesus Christ. And the beautiful, powerful thing is that Jesus gets to critique anything done in Jesus' name, Right? Like anything that bears the name Jesus Christ can be held up to the standard of Jesus Christ and asked whether it's found wanting or faithful. And the creed doesn't say we believe in Christianity. It doesn't believe in all the things that have been done in the name of Christianity. It says we believe in the person of Jesus Christ. And now we're back to that particularity and how I actually think it's good and beautiful, if scandalous. I think it's good and beautiful that all of all of that majesty and abstract power and beauty and creativity gets dropped down and located in the life of a body in the first century. And let me just give you a couple of brief examples of what I mean by the goodness of particularity. These are both stories that, if you've uh, walked with me for a season, you've probably already heard them before. But they're two of the most potent experiences I've had in my life that have helped me understand this. The first. Uh, It goes back to my experience over in Israel and Palestine, um, several trips over the years there and after my first trip, uh, understanding uh, what was happening there in the armed conflict between Israelis and Palestinians and seeing the suffering involved in that conflict. um, I first turned back to the faith as I had understood it and asked myself if my faith had anything to say about a situation like that or how to be a human being in a world where we do those kinds of things to one another. And at first, the honest answer was, no, the faith as I have it right now doesn't have much to say about it. But I had to go back and and relearn it. And in the relearning, I found myself processing with some friends of mine some of these things that I was working through. And then one day, I'm in Washington, D.C. for this leadership gathering related to this network I'm a part of that goes over there and and learns these things. And after the leadership gathering, I go out to dinner with a dear friend of mine, a Palestinian friend of mine who helps lead this network And he invites a friend of his to come join us. And this friend of his is a human rights attorney who's a very passionate advocate with issues related to the conflict. And so it's me and my friend and my friend's friend, and we're there at dinner, and my friend says to his friend, hey, Jay's a pastor, and he has some things to say about this. Don't ever do that to your pastor friends, please. (laughs) Especially because like when somebody says, this is my pastor friend and he has something to say about Jesus in the world, you're not really allowed to say no, even if you don't want to. It's kind of like asking the pastor to pray at the meal. Don't do that to us. We're off duty, right? (laughs) But I'm there um, having a fresh encounter with this person I've just met. And my friend has said, hey, Jay, say that thing that you were saying about Jesus and the conflict. (laughs) So I put on my helmet, you know, and I get in there and I decide I'm going to say whatever I was going to say. And this uh, woman, she cuts me off. And she says, uh, no offense, but this has nothing to do with Jesus. She says, we're talking about a very complicated situation, a deeply entrenched status quo involving militaries and global empires who are using this land as a proxy for their own interests. And she goes on and on. And by the way, I'm not trying to paint her as a villain. I'm actually a big fan of this person. But the more she described how this situation has nothing to do with Jesus, the more clearly I realized how much it was exactly like the situation Jesus inhabited. (laughs) Because quite literally 2,000 years ago, Jesus is a part of a people oppressed by a military occupation, living in a part of the world that has been tossed back and forth by one empire after another because it was useful for their empire projects. Like if there's one thing I'm actually quite convinced of about Jesus, it's that he lived in a time that was at least as complicated as the one that we're living in right now. You can believe in Jesus or not, you can trust Jesus or not, we can agree or not on a lot of things about Jesus. One thing I don't think that you can say with a straight face is that Jesus was naive. Because we wouldn't be talking about him today if he was. He clearly lived at a time and a place um, that had as much crap going on as the one that we live in right now. As many conflicts and fights, as many um, issues around the use of violence, around the expression of empire... As many ways of drawing lines between who is in and out and using everything at human disposal to reinforce those lines at the expense of some and for the benefit of others. This is all part of the world that Jesus lived in, the one he suffered in, the one that he spoke to. Uh, The other experience for me where the particularity really, really mattered was, um, again, a story that I know some of you have heard, but after years of really debilitating mental health struggles for me in college and eventually hospitalizing myself to work through this just deeply entrenched depression that was related to some childhood trauma that I was trying to work through, come out of the hospital and find myself praying prayers of protest because it was really clear to me that God had failed me utterly. Just like all the things I'd heard about God being faithful and showing up for you and healing you, like all of it turned out to be crap in my experience, at least for that moment, I have a different perspective today. But I latched onto a particular prayer from the Old Testament, one that expressed my protest really well. And I prayed that prayer over and over again. God, you're fickle. You fail us. You've been there for others, but you were not there for me. And it was only after praying that prayer for quite a while that I realized it was exactly the prayer. It was precisely the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. When he says, God, why have you forsaken me? And for me, at least, it's in the particularity of Jesus in a brown-skinned body executed by the state in the first century that I found a unique encounter with God. It seems God even knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God, not theoretically, but experientially. This is what particularity has meant to me. To go further into particularity, I'll say this. People have observed that the Apostles' Creed never uses the word love, which is interesting. Because the Creed is meant to be a summary of our faith. And yet the word love doesn't appear anywhere in the Creed, except the more that I've thought about it, the more I think it does. It's just called by a different name. I think when the Creed says we believe in Jesus Christ, it's saying we believe in love, because Jesus Christ is how the Creed talks about love revealed. And for the Creed, it's not abstract, it's not theoretical. It's not a feeling, it's not a concept. For the creed, love is embodied. It's particular. And that makes sense to me because I think love is always particular. And it often comes to us through eye contact, embodies and embraces. For me, love is uh, my dad and my grandpa showing up when my house is falling apart and helping me fix it, showing up with their bodies and their energies. For me, love is my mom. When I was a kid and I was struggling one day, I just have this very distinct memory of her getting down on her knees and looking me in the eye at my level and telling me what she saw in me and why she believed in me it wasn't abstract it wasn't theoretical it was expressed through a body through eye contact through experience for me love was i, I turned 40 a couple weeks ago and it was a few friends of mine rearranging their lives so they could fly to another place and figuring out childcare so that we could spend a few days together and them handing me a stack of letters from other people Um, who wrote letters to me to express care for me and love for me and the names at the end of those letters and and the bodies and the faces of those people. Like To me, love is particular. And the idea that God would live God's life in a body, the more I think about it, is the only way that I would hope that God would live God's life. Um, So yeah, I think it's challenging and tricky that the creed moves from the abstract to the particular because we live in a world that's really complicated around these particulars and yet it's the only way I would have it. Uh, Annie Dillard is one of my favorite authors. If you're not reading Annie Dillard, what are you doing with your life? Uh, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But really, stop everything and read Annie Dillard. One thing I love about Annie Dillard is she has a really complicated relationship with faith. She expresses a lot of the same questions I've wrestled with over the years. But she also says this, and I just love it. That Christ's incarnation occurred improbably, ridiculously, ridiculously at such and such a time and to such and such a place is referred to with great sincerity, even among believers, as the scandal of particularity. Well, the scandal of particularity is the only world that I, in particular, know. We're all up to our necks in this particular scandal. (laughs) I hear that, yeah, the particular is the only way that I know love. And it's actually the only way that I know how to know God. I like big concepts, I like abstract ideas, But the creed says we believe that the mystery at the center of reality has lived its life and given its life in the body of Jesus. And um, to me, that's the way that the creed speaks of love. We've wanted to offer a contemplative practice and an active practice for each week in case you want to take it further in the days ahead. And I want to uh, propose a couple of those for you today in case you want to work further with it this week. Uh, Here's a way that you could contemplate this week. Matthew 16, 13 to 17. That's the text that I was just working through with Jesus and Matthew. And by the way, we're actually going to do that in a second here in case you want to participate and give it a try while we're gathered. So we'll actually do that. And you might take some notes on how you could contemplate that text during the week ahead. And then for acting, uh, this is a sort of a, a foretaste of where we're going in a couple of weeks as well. When we talk about how you can be all about Jesus but miss all the things he's about, let's not do that. Um, we spent months working through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, last school year. The act of practice could be simply this. Go read Matthew 5 through 7, those three chapters, and just look for one instruction from Jesus that stands out. Don't overthink it. There's no right answer. Don't overcomplicate it. Just read lightly through those pages and just wait till something pops out at you, and then do it. That's it. Do it. Like, Just go do it. Actually try it. Just put your energy, your body, your time into it. And as you let that teaching take on some flesh in your life, just keep an eye out for whether you discover that um, love is with you or that the big mystery that we refer to when when we talk about God, keep an eye out for the possibility that that mystery is working its way through you as you do the thing that Jesus told you to do. Um, But let's go back to Matthew 16, and I thought it might be helpful for us to put ourselves in that story for a moment, to contemplate it together before we go. So this is an opt-in exercise, which means it's also free to opt-out exercise, but if you want to, we'll just take a couple of minutes here. And uh, I'm going to read through the text slowly and pause at a couple of points and pose a couple of questions uh, to help us find ourselves in it. This is not a quiz. There are no right answers. There's no right or wrong experience for you as we move through this. The goal is to be present, intentional, and authentic and honest with yourself uh, and open as we move through this contemplation. And so if you want to join me in that, it might be helpful to put your feet flat on the the floor. Uh, You might want to put your hands on your knees. You might want to turn them upward as a posture of openness. And before we begin, God, I recall Jesus telling Peter, um, God has revealed this to you. That Peter opened his heart to a manner of knowing that was different than all of our analysis. As we breathe deeply and calmly, pray you'd help us to open our hearts to that way of knowing. The text begins that Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Forget about their answers for a minute, and you might just sit with that question. Today in the world, who do people say that Jesus is? And if Jesus asked you that in your own imagination right now, how would you respond? guessing most of us aren't responding to Jesus, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. Maybe it's um, man, some people call you God and other people call you a historical figure and others call you a myth. Some people have given you a really good name, Jesus, and others have given you a really bad name. But then Jesus makes it more personal. And imagine he turns to you now. And before I even repeat his question, again, this is not a quiz. This is not about right answers and wrong answers right now. This is just about showing up honest, present and open. But in your imagination, Jesus turns to you and says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Response rose up in you. You might have found yourself genuinely echoing Peter, your Messiah, your King, Son of the Living God. You might have heard the word love. You might have found yourself saying, Honestly, I don't know. Still not sure what to do with you. You might have said, I'm curious, or I'm suspicious. You might have said, I'm afraid that you're nothing, but I hope you're more. My hope for us is that we would lean into the same experience that Jesus recognized in Peter when he said, Blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The hope here is that you can continue to inquire of the divine and trust that the mystery at the heart of reality will help you understand what to do with Jesus. See know the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ may you encounter the divine in the life of that man who lived and died and was raised to new life may we follow his pattern becoming the flesh of love in the world offering ourselves to one another in the same way that God has given God's self to us and may grace and peace be with you Amen. Love you all. See you next week.